Welcome to Job Sharing and Beyond, the future of work podcast that goes beyond the traditional nine to five. I am Karen Tischler, speaker, consultant, and host of the show, where we hear from global experts every other week to discover innovative solutions and tips on how to remain a relevant employer in the future. Hello everyone, before I introduce the final guest of Job Sharing and Beyond's first season, I would like to say thank you for all the positive feedback I have received about my podcast. We now have listeners in 33 countries around the world with Poland being the most recent to join us. I am so thankful for all the appreciation I have received via private messages, social media tags, posts and articles written about the podcast and all the worldwide connections and collaborations that have happened because of it. If you like a particular episode or the podcast in general, please write about it, share it, on social media so that more people can learn about it. But now, without further ado, I am very happy to introduce our final guest for the season, whose work focuses on so many of the aspects this podcast addresses. Chris Park was awarded a scholarship MBA from Imperial College London and has a diploma in clinical organizational psychology from INSEAD. He has been an executive coach for over 15 years. Chris is the co-founder of Talking Talent, a global coaching practice which supports some of the world's leading organizations to retain and develop talent. Chris wrote his INSEAD thesis on understanding the complex transition professional women make when they return to work after having children and how organizations could better retain talented women through maternity. This work underpins some of Talking Talent's unique coaching models and tools for the maternity transition, a core area of expertise. Chris started his career in investment banking with BZW, where he worked across Europe and Asia. Following his MBA, he moved into consulting with PWC and managed cross-border organizational and cultural change projects. It was here that Chris's interest in leadership psychology and helping teams or individuals realize their full potential built. Chris joined Cedar International, a coaching company in London, to pursue this. From there, his passion for the commercial benefits of gender diversity and balanced leadership teams led Chris to co-found Talking Talent. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, I always ask my guests if they could please tell us a little bit where they are currently located, any type of food or um, a local site that might be particularly interesting for our listeners if they were to um, visit your area one day. <laughs> I love that. So um, I guess particular site, um, well, there would be two, I would, I would say. One of them is man-made. So I would say that 
I'm based in the UK and I'm, and I'm just outside of Oxford. So the spires of Oxford are, are very famous, uh, the church spires and, and the architecture in Oxford as a, as a city, kind of famous worldwide. But, you know, I would say that that's, that's a really, uh, really impressive view if you've never seen it. And, this, and the second kind of gives away my, my interest in geography. I read geography as my first degree and um, I'm really near to a place in the UK called the Goring Gap. The Goring Gap is where the River Thames breaks through the moraine that was left after the last ice age. So you've got these really beautiful hills that are uh, the moraines left from the big ice sheet. And then you've got the Thames breaking through in the Goring Gap. And it's, it's a very pretty part of the world. So I love it there. Thank you for sharing. I was in Oxford for two years and it was, yeah, the most beautiful sites of all the um, old buildings. I, it was, I really, really like that. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. So now, Chris, you are the uh, co-founder of Talking Talent. Um, could you tell our listeners more how you came to um, start Talking Talent? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, I, um, I started Talking Talent actually with my wife, Jo. So Jo and I were working for a, um, a business uh, coaching and consulting practice in London. And when Jo and I were working there, uh, we used to oftentimes meet and breaks or discuss our work. And one of the things that we were really conscious of back then was the differences in experience between men and women who we were coaching oftentimes in the same organization and joe and i were also thinking that you know some of the women who we were coaching were a lot more talented than some of the men we were coaching and yet you know they were struggling with their career progression and it was a pattern we kept on on seeing repeating um, And, that, you know, there were various things that I think um, we felt a business psychology and executive coaching could lend themselves to, to, to make a change in that space. So that, that was the kind of seed of the germination of the idea for Talking Talent. And now, of course, we're a far broader uh, coaching and inclusion practice looking at uh, other aspects. But gender diversity was absolutely our passion. 15 years ago and so as you said you've done it for 15 years now can you tell me changes that you have seen over the years yeah gosh <laughs> there you know there are so many I mean I think when we first started our business you know there were friends and family who honestly thought we were completely mad um, even though you know I think Diversity and inclusion had been talked about far more in North America than perhaps in, in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. It's certainly, certainly parts of Europe. Um, and, um, and I, you know, I think back then, I would say 15 years ago, we we're really having to work very hard to create a business case as to why organizations should use our services. Um, And there were some, you know, there were some early adopters, the investment banks, mm -hmm. professional services firms, you know, people where their talent was really central to them. And they were, they were starting to realize how expensive it was for them, both in terms of, you know, having to replace these brilliant people, but also just the knowledge capital walking out the door. Right. So, so the big shift now is that 
we have far more clients coming to us, far more incoming inquiries where clients are really recognizing that this is a competitive advantage. It's something that um, really helps them execute on their business strategy. And it's just not, it's not just nice thing to do. It's not just a kind of box check or a box tick. Uh, and that's, that's really changed quite radically in 15 years, I'd say. And now as you're an international company, out um, across the US and the UK and um, Asia, what have you noticed like Europe versus other regions of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think every region in the world is, is, is got its unique set of circumstances, even in Europe. Europe is very complex, mm -hmm. as you know. Yes. Um, you've got your, your Germanic speaking countries uh, who still have very traditional Uh, views of what the family model should look like, yeah. for example. Um, and then you've got Nordic regions that are a, a lot more progressive when it comes to uh, those, those aspects and um, work-life fit and, and family life. Um, and, th and then there are some really distinct differences, I think, between Europe and North America. So uh, one of the areas that we support around, you know, is coaching individuals through the transition to parenthood mm -hmm. so in europe typically the state really provides good support and intervenes to facilitate a smooth experience there for the working parent so it provides proper amounts of leave time it provides a legal framework that prevents people being discriminated against on the whole um, Whereas, whereas in the States, that's obviously very different. You know, what you find is that corporates are having to fill in that vacuum left by the state. Yeah. So they're having to kind of come up with benefits and other ancillary services that support working parents in the same way that perhaps the state would do. And I know there's some exceptions there, like California and a few of the other states are starting to provide paid parental right. leave, for example. But, you know, There, is, there, are, there are some major differences there, which, which make, I think, the, uh, the platform slightly different. As you're helping female professionals to return back and having the companies retain them, do you, like, when you see professionals who might be coming back after a long period of absence, for example, in, when I was talking to Professor Anjali Bansal in India, I found it very interesting to see that the organizations were actually staying in touch for a long time with their especially female alumni in the hope that one day they would be um, returning back to work from them because I presume they've already quote unquote vetted them as they were part of their organization before. So um, what have you noticed um, with your Uh, international experience of how organizations are trying to um, have professionals returning back after a long period of absence? It's a great question. I mean, I think, Karen, I would say, you know, where your question takes me is I would say that in, in our view, there's so much that organizations could do to prevent some of these women from leaving in the first yep. place. So I just want to talk to that because I think it's really important. Um, I think when we first started talking talent, you know, the research that I did um, prior to launching the business at INSEAD as part of my master's mm -hmm. and then 
the practical experience we've had of coaching thousands of working parents, you know, one of the things that really came to the fore was how individuals oftentimes were having fantasies about what their organization was going to be open to discussing. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they had a lack of role models ahead of them, they, they were making up the stories as to how it was going to arm play. And so there's a really important part here for the line manager, but also the, you know, the talking talent coaches are working with those individuals is to kind of challenge some of those assumptions. And, and also to, for the line manager to really understand what the hopes and fears of working parents are as they move through that transition so that they can head that off before it becomes an issue and open up the conversation to talk about things like flexible working and, you know, a phased return or whatever it might be, which already then opens the door to conversations around, okay, I can really see that Chris is engaging me with this conversation because he wants to keep me. And then actually some of my fears about uh, wanting to request to work a part-time week or a flexible working schedule and that being rejected were, were actually untrue. They're, they're, they're things that I have made up in my own head, but it's, it's not the reality. So, um, so I think that's really important because sometimes, not always, but sometimes women in particular will make a decision to leave their corporation because they haven't asked enough questions or been robust enough in testing whether that system can support them. And the fantasy that is that it won't. Um, that said, I think it is fantastic. It's uh, a fantastic pool of talent for individuals who you know, perform to a high standard. You know, typically, the average age for people having children in Europe has certainly increased into late 20s, early 30s, particularly for professional women. And I think some of those working parents who then take a leave of absence because they, they want to and in, in some cases, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a conscious decision they make. There's so much talent to, to attract back. Uh, they've already proved that they can do it in the past. So why would you not want to have someone who uh, has got those capabilities back in your organization? And I, you know, I really support that. Um, the alumni networks only work, though, if they've had a good experience of becoming a working parent in your organization. So you just want to make sure that they have a really positive exit because there's no point, no point having an alumni uh, program if someone's had a really awful exit because they weren't treated very well on becoming a working parent or on announcing that they were going to leave to become a parent full time. So that's, that's something that's really important to bear in mind. Thank you, Chris. I think that is a really important point. And as you mentioned earlier, having role models within the organization, as we um, mentioned the role models, it's interesting that recently, um, Ruben Ritter from Solando, the co-CEO actually decided to step down because he wanted to prioritize his wife's career and also at the same time was um, planning to take care of um, their soon-to-be two children. And I feel that sort of, you know, we need to see more and more male leaders really to step up on the care work side. And um, 
I saw on your website where it says that seven in 10 dads across Asia Pacific say that their career development took a dive once they became a parent. So now can you, you know, tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so so I, I think um, one of the other big changes, you asked me about big changes over yeah. the last 15 years, but I'm, I'm really, really delighted at the um, increase, certainly here in the UK, but, but also in other markets where we work in, in the US and Asia and across Europe. More and more, um, you've got more and more scenarios where it's a dual career family and more and more scenarios where men are increasingly taking extended absences or extended leaves uh, for paternity. And, and I can only say that that's a really, really positive thing because there's no way we're ever going to get gender parity unless you know, we have models where men are uh, just as able uh, to take leave of absence or to have flexible working schedules so that they can be the parent that they want to be. Right. Um, Allies women are always going to have that double bind that we 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 know and talk about and research shows us um, the impact of that. So so I think what's been really challenging in the coaching work that we do with first time dads or, or uh, new parents, new dads who are wanting to have a more flexible schedule or wanting to be more involved as a parent mm -hmm. It is oftentimes the responses that they get from their line manager, because I think um, we've still got this kind of set notion or um, the older generation has still got a set notion of what the ideal family model looks like right. and you know, what the role of uh, the, the mother or the father or the primary or the secondary carer is. Uh, and it's so outdated now. Um, so, so actually some of the hardest coaching work we've, we've done is, is supporting those individuals, those those kind of, um, I guess, pioneers, the dads who are taking on those different roles or asking to work flexibly or taking extended leaves of absence because some of the discrimination that they face has been even worse than the discrimination we see around maternity, just, just because it's so counter to that ideal family right. model image but it's it's so it's so vital because we're just not not going to be able to progress unless we have both male and female uh, role models that we can look to i'm very passionate about that so, so am i and i feel the more we can raise awareness and um, some of my former guests have um said there is a dad can pretty much do any type of caregiving except for breastfeeding. And I just thought that was the best um, <laughs> way to phrase it because it is true. But it often, yeah. like, you know, it starts from advertising sometimes, right? Where you still have a dad perceived to be, well, I don't know, it's raining and they, I don't know, go out with their kids and forget to bring the umbrella or something like that, sort of, you know. And I feel the more as a society we can show that that's a perfectly, you know, splittable way of taking care, then it will help women as well because then, you know, all their unpaid care work um, can be more equally divided. We, we need to just challenge some of those gender stereotypes, don't we, and the gender norms, because I think it's it, it, it's a terrible indictment when you've got men that we talk to who are you know, fearful of opening up conversations with their line manager about 
wanting to work a flexible schedule or trying to raise a, the notion of working a part-time week or whatever it might be for fear of what that would mean for their career and what that would mean for their personal brand within the organization in which they work, their, their employment brand and their potential for progressing through the organization. So until we shift that, and the only way we're going to shift that is by, again, having more uh, progressive, empathic line managers and senior leadership and role models who are actively demonstrating that, you know, they're also working in that capacity and that, you know, work, um, work-life balance is important to them and um, identities outside of work are things that they take very seriously too. That's not going to change. I completely agree with you. And sometimes people feel like why, you know, going back to the example of um, the CEO, co-CEO of Solando, that that's, you know, becoming a big newspaper um, discussion. And often likely women were in the same position that they would say, okay, I am reducing my career maybe for yeah. my husband. But in my mind, until we see more male role models as carers, especially from a senior leadership perspective, people just don't know that they can do it, that it is possible. And so, yeah, so I fully agree. Well, you know, the, the article is great. I mean, because it is providing us access to these role models that we talk about. But at the same time, you know, I'm longing for the day where we don't have to see, you know, a big splash about right. uh, man, man downs tool to become full-time parent or, you know, we've just made the first female CEO in financial services, uh, Fortune 500, you know, whatever it is. Yes. I, you know, I, I think, I think they're, they're newsworthy because it's so unusual, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice that we can get to a, get to a place where we're not having to kind of you know, herald it as a news, newsworthy item? And I completely agree with you. And I feel in order to get there, we, we are sort of what I would call like the interim stage where we still have to make it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, you know, yeah. people make yes. more people aware and then you know, one day, and it's like, you know, I look at Germany and where they have recently decided that there is a quota now for, you know, female yeah. um, professionals within the, the corporate boards. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, all of these things in my mind have to be done in order to get to the point which you said that one day it is just very normal to have a CEO that happens to be female within a DAX um, company, which in Germany, you know, they, they're just starting. So, and not just Germany, yeah. in other countries as well. Yeah. Of course, you know, any almost any country you can name across the world, yeah. in fact. Yeah. So now, um, when I was doing research, I went back and there was an article there. I found a few from 2012. And so you mentioned back then that your company was offering webinars, which I thought was awesome. And you talked about presenteeism being the enemy of productivity. And here we are now with COVID-19. And so I'm curious what, you know, your experience has been from clients around the world and how COVID has changed um, their attitude towards, you know, remote work and other types of yeah. maybe more flexible work that previously was less uh, accepted maybe 
such a great question. I mean, I think, you know, what was interesting is that over the 15 years, we've worked with clients, some of whom have, have had disasters, either man-made or natural, which has closed their head offices for a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking here of you know, Vodafone, who used to be a client of ours, a big, uh, big mobile telecommunication company. Um, they used to be linked with Verizon, I think, but, but their headquarters in the UK flooded. And so, uh, and so everyone had to work remotely for a while. And I remember talking to people there and they're saying, this is great because finally we've been able to prove uh, to senior leadership that we can all, all work really productively mm -hmm. um, and creatively virtually. And we know that this is the kind of future now. <laughs> then, you know, six months after... Uh, six months afterwards, I'm, I'm sad to say that, you know, everyone kind of went back to their yeah. kind of usual uh, ways of working. But I think this is so much more profound. It's more profound because everyone is having to work virtually. Right. And they have had to do it for an extended time frame. And I think um, what it's made people realize is actually how incredibly productive you can be uh, at times working virtually, either on your own or even uh, collectively within teams who are using technology to engage with other team members in order to get things done. And so, and so my view is that actually uh, the ways that we work have uh, profoundly changed forever. I don't think uh, organizations will ever go back to the traditional model of us all getting on a train and going into the middle of a conurbation. Right. And I, you know, I think that's playing out in what you're hearing about you know, people who look after property in uh, large organizations, reducing their office space and um, no longer committing to renting out these large spaces. And it's just going to be fascinating to see how that pl plays out. Um, and I think the other great thing there is, you know, for anyone who has got an identity out side of work that is really critical to them either because they're a carer or for whatever right. reason um it shows that we're able to work in a far more malleable flexible agile way and and you know i don't think it will move quite radically towards this kind of any any time any place anywhere yet but it's it's certainly the direction of travel and um and you know long may it continue as far as i'm concerned it's great. It'll be really interesting. I've been reading about maybe more sort of localized co-working spaces to allow people not having to go back to like, you know, downtown of a city and instead maybe working from there in the future once um, the pandemic has, um, you know, slowed down. And then I guess also by doing this, helping the, the fact that they can maybe, you know, have much shorter ways to take, say, their kids to school or to have other caregiving, um, um, you know, duties, or then also from a environmental point of view, that it really reduces pollution by having to travel less to a yeah. um, an office and maybe also from a... Um, um, how do you how do you say that in English? Like you know, like maybe becoming less urban in a way because of what yeah. you were saying, right? That you could start working now further away from the big city. Well, you know, I, I think um, 
I think all crises provide opportunity, don't they? And they they certainly provide innovation. We're all having to pivot and you know be agile in our business strategies and everything else. But if we think of you know some of the most profound crises that we're facing as human human beings, humankind, then you know, of course climate is is right up there. You know, it has to be top of the tree really because if we don't get that right we're not going to exist so again you know what excites me um and some of this goes back to my kind of again my first degree i guess where you know i studied climate change all those years ago but you know we have a profound opportunity to change how we work and live now and um if that also facilitates some of these organizations who've committed to being carbon zero in the future, then then we should, you know, we should really embrace that. And I think it will have profound influence on the way that we use office space, where that is, you know, hubs and other uh, ingenuity as to how we come together in a meaningful way uh, when, um, and that we'll be a lot more selective about that. We'll also have a profound impact on things like, you know, childcare. Right. And our on-site childcare facilities, um, you know how how useful will they be if if we change the way that we're working and will we see um, those childcare providers having to shift up their game in a different way? I think that probably is true. And so it's interesting. Yeah, and I've also been reading like you know some of the co-working spaces that will include or already are including um, childcare facilities within them to allow um, yeah, more flexibility. And um, yeah. so, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, I think so. So I think so too. One, one question I had was, you know, as you're coaching um, people returning from um, maternity, paternity leave before, I would say from a pure physical locational difference right you had like the office building and then people coming back but now I imagine when you have new people coming on board of the organization they may not have ever been to the physical building and so in a way somebody coming back from maternity leave like it, it sort of seems more of a leveling field that the sort <laughs> of you know them versus us purely from a physical difference might no longer hold true. So I, I'm just curious if you've heard or, you know, seen that to actually really help um, the people coming back. Well, I think, I think again, you know, opening the aperture of that lens that we're looking through that, that you've helpfully given us just there, Karen, I think one of the winners of, of this, this terrible crisis that we're going through is actually people have had to work a lot harder in communicating with colleagues. And actually we're communicating with colleagues in a different way because we're, you know, we're suddenly seeing the inside of their houses. Right. Uh, you know, we're seeing their pets and children and all sorts of other weird and wonderful things on the walls. And sadly, it, it's led to us being kind of profoundly more connected in a funny way with colleagues, knowing more about them than we perhaps would have done um, have we not had that opportunity? I think the second thing is that it's um, it's forced us all as leaders and managers uh, just to be a lot more mindful of how this whole crisis is impacting our colleagues. So the best line managers have got high emotional intelligence anyway, but all of us, I think, have been more empathic, yeah, more curious, more questioning, um, 
and you know really trying to look out for our colleagues and and so so that's a good thing so i think as a result we're we're a lot more mindful of uh, certainly i am when a new joiner comes i was just speaking with someone actually early on today who's our new copywriter at talking talent mm-hmm. and you know i was asking her a lot of different questions and i was taking a lot more interest in other things um because I was so much more mindful of the fact that she wasn't coming into an office right. to meet me, and she was not meeting any of my colleagues. So she couldn't really get a sense of who Talking Talent was other than talking to us all. And so I wanted to leave her with a really strong impression that she was joining a community, what our values were, and that we were really welcoming her and embracing her with open arms. So I think we just have to work a lot harder at those things because we're all virtual, and I'm hoping that that will benefit um, people returning from maternity as much as new joiners. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just so interesting how many things have changed. And as you said before, there's, I, I'm an optimist in general, so I always see a, a silver lining. Um, so one question I have given that the name of the podcast is job sharing and beyond I'm always curious what your impression might be. Why do you think that job sharing hasn't really caught on as much as I believe it should be? Or have you seen it maybe in certain regions of the world or across different types of industries that it has become more common? And do you think maybe that the pandemic might help with that as well? Job sharing, I think, is so under underutilized, underrated. You know, I honestly think that the reason for that is is around job design. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people get very, I think, stuck and formulaic about how to put together a, a job design and a job description. And some of that is associated with this notion that, you know, you can't be as productive or you can't give the companies as good a return on investment unless you're working full time or you know, you're there in those traditional nine to five, Monday through Friday, and you're sat behind the desk. So we've all we've already talked about how that has been profoundly challenged right. this last 80 months. So I think those organizations, you know, and I would put Talking Talent in here that recognize that designing jobs in a different way gives you a, a huge competitive advantage. Because actually what it allows you is to attract a far greater talent pool. Right. But, you know, working parents or, or carers or, you know, frankly, anyone who's got something going on outside of work, which requires them to work a reduced schedule, uh, you know, whether that's them trying to pursue a, a sporting dream or um, that they have, you know, activity in the local community that's very important to them around their religion or whatever it may Mm -hmm. be around the community if you can design jobs that facilitates that person to engage with those really important parts of their identity then the positive spillover is just so profound the, the spillover of them getting what they need from those other aspects of their life means that they can be really focused and happy and productive when they're in work and productive is really key here because in the UK our productivity has been lousy for years now about a decade our productivity is really tanked hasn't improved um, 
I think the this the spillover goes both ways because you're not leaving work completely burnt out. Right. It's not the only identity you have. So you're not just narrowly focused on one thing, one aspect of your life. And I think, you know, when we start getting creative around job design, you start realizing that all sorts of different kind of permutations become possible. Job sharing, I love because it allows you to get the yin and the yang if you get it right. And, um, you know, two different people will have different strengths, approaches, perspectives, diverse neurodiversity, diverse upbringings. They'll have totally different views on how to solve a particular problem. So of course you're going to get, you know, you're going to get rocket propulsion when it comes to trying to solve complex problems. And as I say, I think it's totally underutilized, particularly you know, as we get into more senior positions right. where th those roles anyway, burn people out because they're so big and complex why why the heck wouldn't we want to have more than one person you know sharing some of those things makes sense to me that sounds really interesting the way you know you talked about the job design and yeah that's like when you look at in the school setting it starts right we teach children to do teamwork and work as a group and then all of a sudden here you are the further you climb up in a um, office or in an organization and it's meant to be all of a sudden you, you're supposed to do it all by yourself interviewing a lot of the people who are doing job sharing or promoting it it's been really fascinating to hear their stories and see how it has helped them and um, my impression is that sometimes people who are against it or are doubtful might simply look at the cost the initial cost in a too like you know short-minded point of view that yes it will probably cost some um you know setup costs as well as you know from a health care perspective especially you know in north america but when you think about the cost to recruit new people if they burn out or leave entirely and their continuation i i just think yeah it's in in the in the um in the uk there was a an um report i believe it was pwc in 2000 and i think 16 on like the costs for having people leaving the workplace and you know the returners and when you look at how many people could be working as you said and it would be a much more inclusive um, workplace and um yeah. yeah so when i think some of that is is there also around our kind of limitations of of, of leadership right yeah. you know if we think of the old-fashioned leadership books and leadership style it talks you know it, it kind of directs us towards this place where leaders have to have the answers right they've got the most experience and they're you know they use their experience and wisdom and their leadership capabilities to make the right calls and make the right right uh, decisions right yeah yeah so i think what we're starting to realize is that that's a fairly old-fashioned view of leadership and it's quite you know it's quite command and control it's a little bit kind of militaristic in a way and we you know we we're certainly excited about you know having a more diverse leadership at senior levels because i think with with that comes different styles right and i think 
what we try and promote is a lot more kind of vulnerability about leadership. So not having the answers, but actually having the right questions and coaching those around you and surrounding yourself with brilliant teams of people who've got great capabilities where you're facilitating them to come up with solutions. It's not your responsibility to have the brilliant idea as the leader and then get people to execute it. So again, you know, with that notion of leadership shifting, it lends itself a lot more towards things like job sharing as well, because it's not about one individual with the most experience making key decisions and executing them through the teams that they have underneath them. It's, it's changing. Thank goodness. So now a business leader or an HR leader who is listening to our conversation and who is thinking how she or he could start supporting more um, working parents or returning professions, what would you tell them like as a first step? Well, I think the first thing to do, honestly, if you, if you don't already know it, is to really go and spend some time with your working parents um, or carers to really understand, well, how do they experience your team, your function, your organization as, as of today, you know? Mm-hmm. What, what would they say to you you're doing really well in support of that population? What would, you, what would they say to you that could be done a lot better or is missing? Um, what's causing them challenges? What's causing them headaches? Because that will give you a sense as to what's getting in the way of them, them being engaged and productive. And engaged is really important because the more engaged they are, the more productive they're going to be. Right. Um, so that's, that's the first place, because I think oftentimes we can end up putting in solutions that we, we think are going to be important, but actually, um, they're not really required. I would say that without shadow of doubt, one of the areas that all organizations and all of talking talents clients have been able to improve on this is line management's capability to support working parents and carers in their careers and in their working lives, whether that's through their attitudes and behaviors, getting rid of their biases, or whether that's setting up, you know, practical frameworks, job design. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that can be done better. You know, when clients work with us, oftentimes we'll have a really profound impact on the number of parents they retain. And most of that is to do with line management capability and the tone they set, the environment that they create for working parents to come back into. So I, I would say, you know, work out what the experience is, focus on line manager capability. And, and then, you know, I would say that if you give working parents a really positive experience of that period in their life, in our experience, they will pay that back tenfold. And, you know, I think that's true because it's such a profound and important period in their life that if you treat them really well, if you show empathy, if you delight and surprise them, then they'll really want to pay you back for that because it's, you know, for most of us, it's our primary role. It's not being a great accountant or banker or lawyer it's being a great parent if that's not going right forget everything else you're going to be miserable right um so um yeah so i would say you know focus on these three things thank you so much chris now as we are looking 
at the future and you've already sort of given us some great um, ideas and tips. You've written an article on January 8th and in there you said leadership frameworks and programs with inclusivity embedded in them as, you know, something going forward. Could you share a bit more about that? It just sounded very interesting. Uh, talking to that, really passionate about helping clients build inclusive cultures. Mm -hmm. And for us, of course, that means, you know, as coaches, it's about kind of changing leadership capabilities. Because I think leading inclusively, uh, being an inclusive leader is, is one of those leadership capabilities that um, we're starting to really become aware of its importance. And I think it's been profoundly underplayed up until now. Um, so this is about, for me, you know, how you get a diverse group of individuals to feel like they can come to work and bring their ideas, be listened to, be included, feel like they really can be in an environment where they can thrive and perform and be their best and not try and have to be something different to fit in or, you know, try and shout loud to get heard right. or behave in different ways in order to fit in. And I think, again, we're, you know, we're just starting to realize the importance of people's um, engagement and productivity when they feel included versus excluded to the point where, you know, people feel excluded. It's, it's the same as, as um, you know, when you have a scan of the brain, it's the same as someone in, uh, experiencing profound um, physical pain. Hmm. If you're excluded, you know, it's the same, you get the same response in the brain. So, you know, for us at Talking Town, it's about having that capability then as one of the things that you measure as to whether someone should be a leader or not, whether they're being a successful leader when you've promoted them to that role. And it's about helping leaders gen generate that capability and be able to flex that muscle. So what does being an inclusive leader mean how do i change my behaviors the language i use the way that i run and manage meetings in order to be more inclusive um and i, I you know i think that there's so much that you can you can help teach and uh, help uh, in order to shift behaviors there we want it to be one of the capabilities that gets measured and we want organizations to give uh, proper support so leaders can can build that muscle Thank you very much, Chris. Now, is there anything we haven't talked about today that you would like our listeners to know? No, I mean, you, you like me, are an optimist and, and you know, we, we've been very positive on this call. I think the flip side of that is that, you know, of course, COVID at the macro level as well as the micro level has really exposed the fissures in society, the inequalities in, in our uh, in our politics, in the way that we run um, our country, our organisations, right right the way down to kind of micro level in terms of people who already felt on the periphery, right. um, probably feel that in a more profound way on teams uh, within organisations, um, and so I would say that. You know, it's exposed really poor leadership and um, at all those different le levels and layers. But, but, you know, again, flipping that to a positive, it's provided us real clarity around 
spaces um, and areas that we need to lean into um, and rectify. Uh, and it's really shone a torch in the basement there. So let's not, you know, hit the reset button and try and rewind to what was. Let's use that as a gift and say, right, we need to roll our sleeves up here. There's some change that really needs to happen. And we've been, uh, we've been shown the way here. So let's not ignore it. That's the last message I'd like to leave you with. Thank you so much, Chris. Now, how can people contact you? Well, you know, the, the easiest way uh, in my email is chris at talking-talent.com or they can get in touch on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Chris Park, uh, CEO of Talking Talent. Or, or, you know, feel free to, to follow uh, Talking Talent. We've got um, our own LinkedIn page, um, which, um, which generates lots of articles and posts and research in this space. So we'd love you to be following us there too. Thank you for asking that. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming onto the show today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas. To keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.